Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and Karen Milliken is here with me. K Millie. <laughs> K Millie. What? 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 All right. I've, that's the first time I've ever heard this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it just came to me. It was a revelation from the Lord. K Millie. <laughs> uh, okay, sweet. Awesome. Yeah, that's Karen Milliken. Hey, we are really excited because the next two weeks we are going to talk to Gary Moon, who was a friend of Dallas Willard's and is his biographer. And we are going to talk about the book, Becoming Dallas Willard, which is the biography on Dallas Willard's life. And it is totally awesome. I have never cried before reading a biography. Mm. This one moved me to tears. It was excellent. Really good. So you guys enjoy our conversation with Gary Moon. Today we are in the studio with Gary Moon, who is the director of the Martin Family Institute and Dallas Willard Center at Westmont College. And I am so excited. Nathan, ask me why I'm excited. (laughs) Well, Karen, (laughs) why, why are you so excited? Because he wrote a book called Becoming Dallas Willard. Mm. And I can say with... Yeah, a lot of integrity. That is the only biography I have ever wept at the end of. Mm. It was a good one. It's so good. And so, Gary, thank you so much for coming on. We are so excited to have you on our podcast today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So, Gary, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Why are you on our podcast today? (laughs) Why did we ask you to be here? I've been wondering about that. (laughs) I don't know. Why am I? I think the biography has something to do with it. And um, just someone who's (laughs) has really liked Dallas Willard for a long time and um, uh, directed the Martin Institute for Christianity and Culture and Dallas Willard Center at Westmont, still work for them doing their... um, resource development initiatives. So I'm, I'm assuming it has to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> and tell everybody, where is Westmont for those who don't know? Oh, Westmont is in Santa Barbara. Yeah, just in the north of uh, Los Angeles. Because Dallas is from, uh, he lived in Pasadena, right? Well, close, yeah, close, just out from Pasadena, about 45 minutes yeah, out of the Simi Valley. But, yeah, that's uh, right. But it, Dallas was at USC. And so there's that whole kind of group of people that run together out in Southern California. So Westmont's out there. and But now you live on the East Coast, right? Georgia's home. And uh, my mom, well, she she was uh, 98.7 and uh, <laughs> have a couple of adult daughters that live in Athens. So it, they let us move back uh, home. I still work for the uh, Martin Institute. There you go. That's good, man. So tell us a little bit about the Dallas Willard Center. What is the purpose? What do y'all do there? Uh, it's, it's dedicated to the life and the ideas of Dallas Willard. There's an on-campus aspect and director uh, focuses on uh, students and faculty at Westmont, spiritual formation. Dallas Willard Research Center focuses on his ideas. There's an annual book award. Uh, we have his uh, books and papers at the library at Westmont. There's a component called Cultura that's uh, invest in kind of young scholars uh, and then I direct what's called Conversatio Divina or conversatio.org. And that's that's um, just partnering with groups to create courses and curricula and various projects, video writing projects. Well, we, our audience is probably listening to this going, you've said this name, Dallas Willard, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. And some of them might not even know who he is. So who is Dallas Willard and... Help us understand just a little bit about why we're talking about him today. What did he do? Why was he significant? Things like that. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, I think the first thing for me is um, he was someone who lived in the kingdom of God here and now mm. in such a way it caused thousands to think that Jesus knew what he was talking about. <laughs> There's a quote from uh, uh, church history, Seraphim of Sarav, who said, let one person find peace, true peace, and tens of thousands will find their salvation. Mm. Uh, he was a person that found it and people around him recognized it. I just wanted to uh, kind of be closer to him. I mean, there's so many things about who he was. He was a, a farm boy from rural Missouri who the first college he attended was Tennessee Temple in Chattanooga. He was an academic philosopher. Um, yeah. So Gary, when we talk about who Dallas Willard was, so you have like the superficial aspect of it. That is, he was the chair of philosophy at USC which, frankly, for a Christian to hold that position is not super common, as far as I know. He was a legitimate, I mean, he wasn't like a C-level philosopher. I mean, he was, he was kind of running with the big boys. He was a big boy <laughs> in, in, in that regard. And so he was doing that, but then he also had all of these writings that were written to equip the church. And so how did you become familiar with him initially? Like, how did you meet him? And what convinced you to go, wait a minute, like you just said a second ago, this guy found peace. What convinced mm -hmm. you that I, I need to be around this guy? Yeah, that goes back a ways. A friend of mine attended a conference where Dallas spoke, and it was right when I think it was the uh, Spirit of the Disciplines had, had come out. Mm. And he just gave me a copy of the book and said, you've got to read this. And I, and I did. And, um, and well, I read the first two chapters. I put it away. I thought, if I finish this book, I'll never have another original idea. <laughs> uh, <That's awesome. laughs> but I liked it so much that before I even finished the book, I invited Dallas and about 15 others to be on the board for something I was calling the Institute of Clinical Theology. And I couldn't believe it when Dallas agreed to be on the board. Wow. And then he agreed to come out and be the speaker at our first conference. Mm -hmm. And I just was kind of uh, uh, awestruck. And I remember writing him a, some kind of silly note to give him as he was getting literally on the bus to go back to the airport after the conference. And, and from that point on, and that was about 1991 or so, mm -hmm. I just kept looking for excuses to uh, be in the same room with him. Yeah, yeah. So help everybody. You know, you said, here's a guy who found peace. There was obviously something about him that drew you through the spirit of the disciplines, which is one of Dallas's more well-known works, um, yeah. to where you're like, I'm looking for excuses. Help put us in your shoes. What was it like? to interact with him? And what was the draw that allured so many people to him? Yeah, I think it was authenticity. Um, it was just something about a conversation with him. You just felt like, and uh, I have a friend who called it that uh, he was someone from a different zip code, that he was, he was living in the kingdom. When you were around him, you thought, you know, maybe all these incredible promises of Jesus that you rarely meet someone who feels like that they are living those promises, but this, this person has, and you just want to know how he got there, what was different. And uh, so it's kind of a lifetime journey to try to, to discover that for very selfish reasons and also for eventually for reasons of wanting to pass it on to others. Yeah, totally. Something that's intriguing about him is that you, you see that it sounds like not only in person, but in his books, like yeah. the way that he talks about God, the way that he talks about spiritual ideas, 
He can take really complex things and make them so simple. One of my favorites of his is Hearing God, which is just all about this like conversational relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's so simple to think about, but like utterly profound. And it's just sweet to consider like, hey, that's not only how he wrote, but that's how he lived his life. And that's what drew people in mm-hmm. uh, to know him better. And so the, a lot of the books, like Spirit of the Disciplines, Divine Conspiracy, like you sense that yeah. in him. Yeah, you know? sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I've got incredible respect for your intellect. You must have an IQ over 140 <laughs> to say that it was simple. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would, it, until the very end, it kind of would make my, make my brain uh, bleed to try to, I mean, it is very dense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I could only digest about two pages at a time. But you're, I think you're 100% right. He's saying something with great simplicity, mm-hmm. but because of his academic background, because of his appreciation, his knowledge of scripture, he could explain the simplicity in, yes. in ways that might hurt your head, but he's still talking about things that are very simple. Yes, like his ideas are very complex, but he had a way of explaining them in a way that people could understand. There are aspects of it, like in, you know, the conversational style of communicating with Jesus that a lot of people, um, including myself, have been drawn to. However, at the same time, yeah, like Gary, what you're saying, the way our our mutual friend Steve Porter uh, told me Mm -hmm. one time, he was like, yeah, there was Dallas... There was Dallas's works, and then there were people who were literally like translating Dallas's works. <laughs> you right. know, it's like, right. okay, Dallas, like that was really awesome what you just wrote. Now I'm gonna have to like put it into regular language that everybody can understand. You know, so there was it was interesting because he was doing both at the same time. I think in a lot of ways, talking about the complexities. Uh, like earlier in my life, when, as a seminary student, early on, I read uh, Renovation of the Heart. And it's a fairly short book, but it took me a while to get through it <laughs> yeah. just to understand exactly what he was talking about. He's Dallas has been called by some uh, America's answer to C.S. Lewis. I think that's kind of, uh, and, and by that, I think most people mean that he was an academic. That was his base. Right. But his most popular books and, and most of his influence, more so than in philosophy or in, in Lewis's case, literature, was his Christian writings. Yep. One of my favorite stories from the biography was it wasn't exactly a deathbed conversation, but it could have been. And he only lived a few months after this conversation. He talked, had a conversation with uh, J.P. Moreland, uh, one of his 31 PhD students, right before this major invasive surgery. And I had known Dallas for 25, 30 years when I heard this conversation from J.P., and there was something about it that it just, it put everything in focus. I mean, Dallas told JP, he said, I have four critical concerns that have guided everything that I've ever done. And I think these four concerns are the secret uh, to Willard. And he said them to JP, like one philosopher would say it to another. So, of course, I didn't understand it. <laughs> but when I got people to explain it to me and unpack it, I realized, wow, wow, I think this is it. I think this is the secret. He told JP that he had a concern for a robust metaphysical realism, uh, which, you know, that's what does that mean? I mean, English, please. And (laughs) so the translation is the concern that people understand uh, that there is a mind independent reality that includes invisible things like the kingdom and like the Trinity 
And that reality is more real <laughs> than, yep. than this table or this chair. Mm. And so he wrote The Divine Conspiracy to try to help people understand God is really here. Mm. If you're praying or talking to Jesus, he's likely to walk right up and say hello. And he really believed it. Yep. I mean, people talk about it, but he re- believed the reality of that. Mm. And then a second concern follows. It was for an epistemic realism. What does that mean? I eventually discovered what that means is <laughs> that not only are things like the kingdom and the Trinity, not only are they real, but you can interact with that reality and you can learn from, you can draw wisdom from that reality. So you can have a conversation, you know, hearing God, you can have those kind of conversations. And so he writes over the course of his life, the spirit of the disciplines and hearing God motivated by that concern. Mm -hmm. And then the last two, the third one is his anthropology concern. Uh, He had a concern for a complete anthropology uh, that we don't leave out the invisible parts of the person, that the invisible parts are our most important parts. And those are the parts that are being excluded in most, you know, universities and psychology departments, Mm -hmm. that the spirit and the soul and the mind and consciousness are part of that reality. And that's how we interact with God. And then finally, his fourth concern, and he might say it almost humorously sometimes, but basically, if he's not blowing smoke, uh, then that type of interaction should produce real and measurable change. Mm -hmm. And if I had to summarize Dallas with four things, it would be those four things. Yeah, that's good. They drove his life. They drove his writing. And I think they're what separate him from most Christian writers. Mm You know what's interesting when you're talking about that is I think it, it shows the gap between the world of academia and the church mm-hmm. because Dallas emphasized in the academy the metaphysical championing what you talk about in the book is uh, phenomenology, this idea that there's this metaphysical reality that is more real, not less, than uh, the physical world, and yet It's funny because he switches gears when he's writing to the church and he emphasizes the physicality of spiritual formation and the physicality of the kingdom of God to show like, hey, this is embodied. There's so much that he writes to the church about, hey, don't just, you're not just a, an idea or a soul floating around. You're embodied and, and formation in Christ is also a a physical corporeal reality. Well, that this that the spiritual element that he's talking about becomes incarnational. Right. I mean, yes. Right. But and Nate, I think we're saying the exact same thing here, but I think this was not only shocking news to the academy about this invisible <laughs> real all around us, but I think <laughs> the impact of Dallas in large part is he is introducing a first century Christianity to a 20th century church, yeah, which while we talk about spiritual things, I think there's almost was a lost belief that this is really true, yeah, that, yeah. that the kingdom is really here, not just for someday in the future, that the Trinity is, is really here and mm-hmm. that there's a conversational possibility between us and the Trinity. So I think it blew the minds of a lot of the modern and especially certain maybe evangelical yeah. branches of the church um, is his 
childlike belief and then he could back it up with the mind of a philosopher. <laughs> yes. It's all true. You yeah, hit, yeah. That is the perfect phrase because yeah. that is exactly what it is of these statements. Mm-hmm. Like you can really talk to Jesus. He's sitting right next to you, which is something you would hear in what? Second grade Sunday school. And then he writes this whole explanation that literally blows your mind of like, oh, you're right. He is right here. It's crazy. Yeah, totally. So help me understand, because even hearing you talk about him in like the church world versus the academic world, was he taken seriously in the academic world because of his religious beliefs or did people find him crazy? Um, those are good questions. I think somewhere in between, um, his intellect was was unmistakable. I mean, you read his philosophical papers and you realize he's world class here. However, there were a couple of things. He had a couple of strikes against him for some in the philosophical world. I mean, A, he was a Christian, and B, he was a, a, a Edmund Husserl scholar. He was a phenomenologist. And it's hard to exactly explain that as far as why is that like maybe considered passe. Um, Franz Brentano, don't expect anybody to know who that was. I sure didn't. He had two famous students. One was Edmund Husserl. And the other was Sigmund Freud. No, I've heard of one of those. Yeah. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. And so they are learning from Quintano about, if you will, the importance of the invisible real. Or um, I'm saying it in a slightly simplified way so I can understand yes, it. Yes, please But do. basically, okay. think about it. These two famous students went back to their disciplines and founded subdisciplines. So Husserl goes back and basically becomes the founder of the uh, the fountainhead of phenomenology in philosophy. Freud goes back and founds kind of depth psychology. So if the university is kind of moving away from phenomenology and moving away from depth psychology because they're maybe embarrassed by, hey, these disciplines are studying things that you can't see, count, measure, dissect. So he was a world-class philosopher who was in the philosophical realm, not at the center of modern philosophy. And I think that's a wonderful thing, but it might have caused them to experience some rejection by the um, heart of philosophy at the time, or analytical philosophy. Well, because where philosophy stands, at least today, I mean, all of the presuppositions are totally different, starting from a position of an unseen, unquantifiable, unmeasurable reality, so to speak. So many people start from the position that that can't be real. And so you have a guy over here who's actually like, actually, (laughs) you know, I I think it really is. And here's why. Then, you know, that automatically puts him, you know, on the outskirts. But it doesn't mean he's wrong at all. In fact, quite the opposite. (laughs) In my opinion, quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah, totally, for sure. So we're talking about this guy who's a part of this conversation, and he has an academic career, a long and successful academic career, but then also, you know, is writing to the church. But I think just personally, help us get to know him. I mean, this guy is from rural Missouri. Help connect those dots. How does a rural farm boy from Missouri become the chair of philosophy at USC and a, and a strong Christian voice in the 21st century? Well, I, mean, I think the simple answer, it was one step at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, he grew up and it was a poverty. You could see poverty from there in rural Missouri. Lost his mother before he was three. 
no visual memories uh, of, of his mom. Some kind of ephemeral memories of some places they used to be. After she died, he was, it, one of the hardest things about writing the biography was keeping up with where he was between the time he was three and he, and he was in college because it was almost kind of a different caretaker every other year or so. Yeah. Very religious family, always present at a, uh, at not just a Baptist church, not just a Southern Baptist church, but independent uh, Baptist church. Uh-huh. And he uh, was a very normal kid in school. He didn't make uh, wonderful grades always. <laughs> he was just a country fellow who was bright, but it didn't always show up on his report card. Uh, he was a bit athletic, played some sports, uh, you know, had had girlfriends and friends. And when he finished high school, he didn't go to college right away. In fact, he was a migrant farm worker for a couple of years, uh, went to the Midwest with a copy of Plato's Republic in his back pocket and worked for a couple of years. Hmm. His older brother, J.I., who was, was almost, well, yeah, something of a father figure in his life, and his sister-in-law, Bertha, who was definitely something of a yep. mother figure in his life. Many of his years, he lived with him. Yep. And so many just wonderful stories. Bertha said that when he came to live with him, he was so young and I was so young. I didn't raise him. We raised each other. <laughs> uh, it, there's definitely pain in the loss of his mom and the bouncing around. And, the, and, it, and there were some insecurities that you would never suspect from hearing him later in his life. But he ended up at Tennessee Temple, which today doesn't exist. But at the time he was there and he met Jane Willard there, mm-hmm. it was a thriving school in Chattanooga, Tennessee. In fact, Falwell showed up and was asking the uh, uh, the person who founded Tennessee Temple, you know, how did you do this? And then he went off and founded Liberty University. Mm-hmm. But it was a very um, revivalistic school and environment. Uh, very driven toward the decisions for Christ, and uh, they would the students would joke that the the red and green light in town that the green light was for go and preach the gospel to all uh, <laughs> all who will hear. Um, kind of a like a second grade awakening kind of feel. That's, that's very good, yeah. and there's lots of surprising things with his time at Tennessee Temple. I won't get into all the weeds there, but one of the turning points in his life followed. Uh, uh, cheating on a Romans exam and and getting in trouble and getting under conviction and and being prayed for and having a very powerful experience with the Trinity, you know, as being here and real. And it was life-changing for him. He and Jane finished Tennessee Temple. They, uh, they're teaching back home in Missouri. He's pastoring a little Baptist church, and they're both teaching at the high school that Dallas attended. But then one day the principal shows up and says, I'm sorry, but you're fired. Um, Their degree from Tennessee Temple wasn't accredited, so they lost their jobs. And they went to uh, Waco, Texas, and Dallas got a second undergraduate degree in philosophy and and fell in love with philosophy. He also, though, was, um, was in love with the church. And so he finished Baylor. They went to Jane's hometown near Warner Robins, Georgia, and he's pastoring, uh, associate pastor at her church. And he wakes up one day basically and says, I may be sued for my malpractice as a pastor because I don't know anything about the soul. <laughs> and he decides not to go to seminary, but to go to study uh, 
graduate level philosophy at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, not thinking about getting a degree. He just wants to know more about the soul and there are reasons that he picked uh, an academic institution instead of a seminary that we probably won't get into. But um, So I read in the book this uh, conversation he had. I can't remember who it was with, but they had a conversation and the person told him, hey, if you go to the church, then the academy will be closed to you. But if you go to the academy, both will be open to you. Is that when yeah, that, that happened, when they were in Georgia? You would think so, but that actually happened at Madison. He he had finished his PhD program, oh, okay, uh, okay. and he was, uh, like he did for most of his life, he was working two full-time jobs. One was pastoring a couple of churches close to Madison, and the other was he was doing a very prestigious postdoctoral fellowship teaching at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he, he was really torn, sort of switch road to take, church or teaching. And that's when that conversation happened, where a fellow professor said, hey, that's easy. Uh, Pick the university and you'll get the churches as well. If you pick the churches, you won't get the university. Uh, And that's that's what happened. And then from my perspective, as far as somebody from Georgia, a very bad thing happened. He was offered uh, several teaching jobs. One was at the University of Georgia. One was at the University of Southern California. And he decided not to become a Georgia Bulldog. Yeah, and he went west, young man. <laughs> mostly because I think it was maybe uh, the teaching load was a little bit less and he wanted he knew he wanted to write. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So that sent him out to Southern California. And, and uh, how long was he at USC? Oh, he was. He began in uh, 1964, oh 65. And wow. Incredible. Of course, he died uh, in, in 2013. Yeah. In more than four decades. Wow. That's amazing. Well, as we've been talking with Gary, obviously about Dallas, uh, there's so much more that's part of this story. And we're going to continue the conversation with him. But I would encourage you to uh, go pick up Becoming Dallas Willard. I think you can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Uh, Gary Moon wrote the biography, a guy who was friends with Dallas for decades. And so y'all go check that out and uh, hang with us because we're going to be back with Gary next week talking more on how did Dallas view the world. We touched on that a little bit today, but we'll talk more about it next time. And until then, you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you liked it, give us a great rating and review. Tell us all the nice things about us. Five stars. Five stars. And if you have questions or thoughts on podcasts we can do in the future, email us at equippingpodcast.watermark.org. Bye. Peace. Peace.